takes a shower, comes out and says, oh my God, what is that weird thing I see? And it's Rebecca hanging naked, bound and gagged with her hands bound behind her back, her ankles tied together. And he calls 911. The book is Death on Ocean Boulevard Inside the Coronado Mansion Case. The guest is Caitlin Rother with a very strange case indeed. Up next on The Crime Scene. The crimes, the criminals, why did they do it? Who got hurt? Did they meet justice or commit the perfect crime? You'll find all the clues at Jim Harold's Crime Scene. Welcome to The Crime Scene. I am Jim Harold. So glad to be with you once again. And for those of you who remember the first iteration of this podcast, one of my favorite guests that we ever had, and we had an opportunity to speak with her on multiple occasions, was Caitlin Rother. If that name is familiar, well, it should be if you're interested in true crime. She's a New York Times bestselling author. She is working on her 15th book currently as a Pulitzer-nominated investigative journalist. Caitlin worked nearly 20 years for daily newspapers, writing books full-time since 2006. She draws from decades of watchdog reporting on topics from addiction to suicide, mental illness, murder, government, political corruption, and the criminal justice system. A popular speaker, Caitlin has appeared more than 250 times on TV, radio, and podcasts as a true crime expert. She loves to go ocean swimming and sings and plays keyboards in the acoustic group Harmonic Convergence. I did not know that. And uh, we're so glad to have her on the show to talk about her recent book, an extremely popular Death on Ocean Boulevard Inside the Coronado Mansion Case. And we're so glad to have her back on the show after all these years. Caitlin, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me. And so much so, this book has made such an impression. If I understand correctly, it's been optioned for uh, an upcoming TV series. Yes, it has by Untitled Entertainment. And we are still in the uh, production development stage right now. Well, congratulations on that. That's all I'm allowed to say. <laughs> we have lots of interest from um, from major studios, and that's all I'm allowed to say. <laughs> I have a feeling we will see it on screens in front of us very, very soon. Well, I, I'm glad to have you on. Now, the Coronado Mansion case. Can you give us the who, what, when, where, and why, or a little bit about that, a little primer on it if we've not heard about it? Well, this case hit the news um, pretty much right away uh, back in July of 2011. Um, and forgive me if I start slipping. I'm working on another case from San Diego County that happened a year earlier, and these two overlapped. And I'm right getting toward the end of the book, and my <laughs> short-term memory is full of the McStay family murder case. But they were both investigated by the San Diego County Sheriff's Department, and they both have come under great scrutiny by the public for uh, flawed investigations. So I'll just give that preface. <laughs> but basically what happened is that Rebecca Zahal was dating this multimillionaire, uh, Jonah Shacknight, who lives, uh, lived at the time in the Spreckles Mansion in Coronado, California which is a little island connected by a tiny strip of land to the rest of San Diego. It's a beautiful place. It's, it's home to the Hotel Del Coronado, which is a famous hotel that 
Some Like It Hot was filmed there way long ago. So it's a very old. Oh, yeah. Jack, Jack Lemon and Tony Curtis. Right. So it's a, it's a great little vacation spot. Very uh, strong military presence. Um, lots of people who come there from Arizona because it's so hot. So Jonah Shacknai and Rebecca Zahal lived part-time um, there for the summer months. And then they lived in the Phoenix, Scottsdale area the rest of the, the time. Jonah had a little boy, six-year-old Max Shacknai, who Rebecca had quit her job as an ophthalmic technician to take care of full-time. And so they were all kind of hanging out at the mansion. And Rebecca's sister was visiting, 13-year-old sister, out from Missouri. And Jonah went to the gym. And Rebecca was downstairs in the restroom. And her sister was upstairs taking a shower. Rebecca hears a crash and she comes out and she sees little Max Shackney lying on the floor uh, with shattered glass. One of these antique chandeliers. This is an old house built in 1907, way back when. And so this chandelier was the original chandelier. It was lying on the floor next to him. There was a soccer ball, a razor scooter, and a wienerammer, if I don't pronounce that right. (laughs) Barking, barking, barking. And he was not breathing. So she um, screamed out for her sister, you know, call 911. So they called for the paramedics and the police came. And basically about 25 or 30 minutes later, they got Max breathing again. Um, Rebecca told, told them that she had been doing CPR, but nobody actually saw her doing CPR when they got there. Hmm. So... Anyway, he eventually, he had, a, he had a severe brain injury. So they took him over to the Radies Children's Hospital. But Rebecca was not allowed to come visit him because she did not get along with the little boy's mother. So now there's a whole bunch of drama in the story. And that's because Jonah had two previous wives with two sets of kids. You know, two teenagers and this little boy, Max, from two different previous relationships. So basically, Rebecca was crying. She was very upset, but she she basically, for the next couple of days, was resigned to tra- taking family members from Max's, you know, Max's mother, Max's aunt, um, and Jonah's brother Adam, back and forth, and and Jonah's best friend, back and forth to the airport. So she was basically just helping, but she wasn't allowed to see this little boy who she loved and who loved her. Two days later, Adam Shacknai, who had come out to support his brother, who had been at the, at the hospital for a couple of days now because the little boy was in ICU, Adam Shacknai drives back after having some dinner with Jonah and Rebecca back to the mansion, and they leave Jonah at the hospital, and Adam and Rebecca go back to the mansion. This is two days after the little boy falls. And they, according to Adam, they say goodbye in the courtyard. He goes into the guest house. She goes into the main house. He goes to sleep. He wakes up at about, what, 6.30 or so, pleasures himself to porn on his phone, which he tells police, takes a shower, comes out, and says, oh, my God, what is that weird thing I see? And it's Rebecca hanging, naked, bound and gagged with her hands bound behind her back, her ankles tied together, and he calls 911. 
And so all this, you can hear it on the 911 tape. He grabs a knife out of the kitchen. He pulls this wooden table over, which has a broken leg, and you can hear the leg bouncing on the brick. Pulls the table underneath her, takes the knife, gets up on the table, and cuts her down, takes her body against him, and then lays her down on the grass. Now, this is all on the 911 call. By the time the police get there, she's on the grass. So they never saw her hanging. Hmm. So the only person who ever saw her hanging was Adam. So I'm going to fast forward. A couple months later, Sheriff's Department says this is a suicide. So that is basically, in a nutshell, all the... (laughs) There's all the players, that's all the drama. And Adam Shackney basically says he's, you know, thought she might still be alive, tried giving her CPR, um, but she was gone. That's just, I don't know how much further you want me to go, but I'll just leave it there. <laughs> okay. no, 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 that's good. That's good. There's, there's one thing that, uh, that you mentioned on, on the website, so I don't think it's top secret because we definitely want people to get the book and get the information. But there was a cryptic message, wasn't there? Yes, there was a cryptic message on the bedroom door of the room where the rope that she was hanging from was anchored. It said, she saved him, can you save her? No punctuation, all capital letters painted in black on a white door. Now, I should also say her family said right away, and, and so did all of the friends and Jonah, by the way, initially told uh, the police who passed it on to the sheriff's department immediately because they don't investigate murders in Coronado because they're too small. They don't have murders in Coronado usually that this they believed that she did not commit suicide, that this was a, that this was a murder. She, she wouldn't have done this to herself. And what Jonah said initially was she wouldn't have done this to him because he was this big pharmaceutical magnate who owned this company in Arizona and this really hurt his his company you know this publicity did not help his company and so he even said to the sheriff's department can't you state that I'm not a suspect publicly because this is really hurting our shareholders and you know meanwhile they're interviewing Adam and Adam said you know he cut her down and and that was it and they let him go they pretty much in a few days, based on my reporting, based on my research, based on having the entire investigative file, which I got from two independent sources separately, um, not from the sheriff's department, um, they basically had decided that it was a suicide within days, really. And so they spent a couple months, quote unquote, investigating. But it seemed pretty early on that they decided she felt guilty because she was the only adult in the house when, the, when Max fell that she felt like it was her fault and she killed herself because she felt bad after Jonah had left her a voicemail, which none of us has ever ever heard because it got deleted. But he claims that he called her and said, I just got bad news from the doctors. The, you know, best case scenario is that he will never walk or talk again. And so according to the sheriff's department, she killed herself. So that's why it's so controversial is because The family says, no, she wouldn't have done that. She certainly wouldn't have done that naked. Why would she? I mean, and it's so unusual to have a woman 
who would kill herself. And I w- it's not really in public per se because it's a private courtyard, but her body was left naked on the grass all day long. And people in adjoining, ha- you know, these are all mansions. This is across the street from the ocean. These are very expensive houses. There, People could see her body from adjoining houses. There were news helicopters flying over. Nobody covered her body. They didn't protect the evidence, essentially, so that when they did their DNA tests, they said, well, all we could find was her DNA on the ropes and on the the knives that she supposedly used to cut the, the rope into pieces and tie, you know, tie herself up, etc. And there wasn't even any of Adam's DNA on the knife that he said he used to cut her down. So there's lots of questions about what actually happened. Yeah, sure seems like it. I, I mean, for example, the message, I guess if she were in a mentally disoriented state, she may have been so kind of exercised at the moment that she may have written a message like that. But it would seem counterintuitive if I'm going to kill myself, I would write a message, she saved him, can you save her? It just wouldn't seem to make a lot of sense. Yeah, nobody really knows what to make of this message, honestly, <laughs> because it's it's written in a third person. And the other thing is that's not even saying it's the family. I mean, ostensibly couldn't have been somebody from the outside. Well, there are people who have examined the scene and say, you know, and I agree, the message is kind of taunting. And it's written the the strokes with the paintbrush. It's a paintbrush, not a pen. It just seemed pretty angry, you know, like the the movement of the lettering and she's naked and tied up with her hands behind her back and this gag wrapped around her mouth. It just it it seems degrading to people. You know, they they felt like she it was like a demeaning thing. And so why would she kill herself this way? And by the same token, why would somebody murder her this way? So my, I, I don't take a position in the book, um, and I don't take a position if somebody asks me. I, I don't say whether I think it's suicide or murder, because honestly, I don't know. I don't think we have enough questions answered, because there's a lot of things that are completely contradictory and that don't make sense physically. Um, but I believe that it was either a staged homicide or a staged suicide, because that, nothing else makes sense. Well, when we get back, I want to talk about something that I think may apply to this case, but not necessarily, but just in general, with all your years' experience, I want to ask you, because I think it's something a lot of us think. I want to get your opinion on it, because you know. And we will talk more with Caitlin Rother about Death on Ocean Boulevard right after this. Thanks for listening to Jim Harold's Crime Scene. We're so glad to be back. Please make sure to follow the show and the podcast app of your choice so you never miss an episode. Also, please share the show with your friends who are fascinated by true crime the way we are. Maybe even text them a link to this episode. Finally, be sure to rate and review the show in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for your help and for listening. Be careful out there. And now back to Jim Harold's Crime Scene. We're back on the crime scene. Jim Harold here with uh, a great author, a New York Times bestselling author, Caitlin Rother, was kind enough to come back on the show after many, many years uh, and while we were on hiatus and she's 
graciously agreed to come back, and we appreciate it. We're talking about her recent book, Death on Ocean Boulevard, Inside the Coronado Mansion Case. Now, what I kind of teased before the break there, Caitlin, was this. Many of us, including myself, think there are two justice systems. There's a justice system for people who are, you know, middle class or poor, and there's a justice system for the wealthy or the uber wealthy. And I, I think it's a continuum. You know, there's rich and then there's rich. And, you know, these folks we're talking about are rich, you know. But I'm not just talking about these folks. I'm talking about or I'm not necessarily talking about these folks. I'm just saying in general, if you have a lot of money and you go into the criminal justice system and you have to interface with it, You've got a lot of advantages, at least to my mind. What do you say about that? Well, here's what I say <laughs> without getting myself in trouble. Um, there, there are people, many people in this town and across the country who uh, have told me this personally, actually approached me in Home Depot. Um, and this has come out of the Zahau's attorney as well, because the Zahau's sued Adam Shackney in civil court. For wrongful death, and they won, by the way. 2018, a jury found Adam Shackney, the one who said he found her hanging and cut her down, found him responsible for wrongful death, which in civil court is, you know, murder essentially. That's what they accused him of. Adam was represented by Dan Webb. Now, Dan Webb is one of the most high profile civil attorneys in the country. And how did he pay for that? Because he was his rich brother's attorney before. And this guy is a former U.S. attorney. He's very well known. He represents some of the biggest corporations in the country. High-powered attorney. And he still lost his case, however. So, But what the Zahau's attorneys and the Zahau's say is that they believe there was corruption. And that's because Adam Shackney had so much money that he got special treatment and therefore his brother got special treatment. The former DA in town got a call that morning and said, Adam Shackney needs a lawyer. Can you represent him? Now, Jonah said it wasn't him calling him, but somebody called for, for Jonah or for Adam's sake from the family, this rich multimillionaire family. So, and he crossed the um, yellow tape and walked right in, put his arm around the sheriff's deputy. There's pictures of him. So, you know, from the very beginning, there was this taint to this case based on exactly what you're saying, that rich people are treated differently. Jonah Shackney says no. Uh, The sheriff at the time, Bill Gore, said absolutely not. There were no campaign contributions to Bill Gore's reelection campaign. Nothing was found at least publicly. So there's no proof of that, but there's definitely a perception that they got special treatment. So is there more to know about this election? So yeah, there, Bill Gore won re-election after this happened. Now, so the, the jury trial was in 2018. They found Adam Shackney responsible. Immediately, within an hour, he's making a statement saying, I'm paraphrasing to be hyperbolic, but, you know, we don't care about what the jury said. We still say she committed suicide. So clearly that was a tone-deaf, politically tone-deaf statement. His opponent in the race immediately said, well, 
if I'm elected sheriff, I'm reopening this criminal case because the the jury verdict does matter. And they think that she was murdered. So we should look in, into that. They don't think we did a good enough job investigating this case. And and to the day, to this day, that is still what many people think. So he lost, though, because Sheriff Gore went ahead and said, okay, well, I'll do a review of the case. So he appointed a few detectives who were not on the original team and had them supposedly review the case. Now, this is not reopening the case. This is not reinvestigating the case. They didn't retest any of the DNA or anything like that. Didn't interview anybody new, didn't re-interview anybody. So frankly, I don't know what they were doing, but they said they were basically reviewing whatever theories came out of the trial. But they said, it's no new evidence. It's just a different interpretation of existing evidence. Therefore, we aren't changing our position. So he, he won. And then earlier this year, he basically was going to retire to do what happened to him. Let the the previous sheriff did this for him, basically appointed him to acting the acting sheriff so that when he came up in the next election, he could win as as the leader who was already in place. So he tried to do this for Kelly Martinez, and she had been in the department for 37 years. And she changed her party affiliation from Republican to Democrat, lined up some endorsements. And basically, the strategy, um, as far as I could tell, was to knock out the same opponent that ran against Bill Gore, who was a Democrat, and get him out of the way in the primary. Because um, there are other people who are Republicans, but she, I think she felt like she could had a better chance of winning if she could knock this guy out. And so he once again said, want to reopen the Zahao case if I win. And she didn't really say anything. So she knocked him out in the primary, just as, just as she planned. The other guy, John Hemmerling, who was running against her as a Republican, he basically decided to do the same thing. I'm going to reopen the Zahao case if I get elected. And he met with the Zahaos. He did a press conference with them just a couple of weeks ago. And then the day of the election comes and the, they still haven't called it officially, but he's way behind. So he's not going to win. She's ahead by 17 percentage points. So I don't think that's going to happen. But she's basically said, I asked her personally, I went to a forum and I said, are you going to, you know, what's your position on reopening the Zahao case? And she said, well, I, first of all, don't think that anybody should reopen the case unless the medical examiner's office changes its finding from suicide to homicide. So the Zahaos, and, and, also, and then she said, and also, you know, we've already asked other agencies if they want to reopen the case. And they said, no. And I said, recently? And she said, no. And I said, well, yeah, that was like 10 years ago, you know. So she doesn't want to do this. I don't think the medical examiner's office wants to change anything either. So unfortunately, I don't see this case being reopened unless there's a house. They've tried everything. They sued the sheriff's department. Um, it looked like they were about to lose, so they just had it dismissed and withdrew. Um, they've, they've now said, oh, we're going to try to get the medical examiner's office to change the death certificate to undetermined or homicide as a way to force the sheriff's hand to reopen it or, or get an outside agency to reopen it. I don't see that happening, but they're still trying. They, from, from day one, they have been fighting to get this, this death certificate changed. 
and to get Adam Shackney prosecuted. So it's still in play. They had a big loss with this election because they were really hoping that John Hemmerling would, you know, first day in office, maybe, you know, reopen their case. And I I was hoping they would reopen it too, honestly. I mean, I would like to see some of these questions answered. That was actually going to be my next question for you. Whether it's this case or it's other cases, will you feel that maybe the, the justice has not been fully played out? Not saying guilt or innocence, just saying that all the facts have not been uncovered and looked at appropriately. Do you personally find that frustrating? Or over the years, have you built up like a, you know, kind of like a doctor who sees somebody die? You feel bad, but you know, you got to yeah. get to the next patient. I mean, does it does it stick with you? I can't get personally invested in these cases other than I do feel a tremendous responsibility to be accurate and thorough and to get to the truth as, as closely as I can. I feel very strongly about that, but I I can't get too personally involved in elections. You know, I don't take sides. I'm I'm still a journalist, even though I'm an author and some authors state opinions and get very more, much more activist. I have chosen not to do that. I, I'm a trained newspaper investigative reporter. And so I have stuck to the, you know, remain objectives, try to stay neutral kind of thing. But it's hard when you see, when I was a reporter for the newspaper, I did government reporting, and political reporting mostly. And so I've always been trying to focus on, you know, wrongdoing, incompetence, negligence kind of thing in government, because there's plenty of it. (laughs) And oftentimes it's not corruption, it's dignity and hubris and ego. And I think that confirmation bias, which is what this Ahau family claims happened in this case, is very likely in play. They, you know, the, the Coronado police came the same people, the same officers responded both to the 911 call when Max was injured and also when, when Rebecca, um, when her body was found. So they, they had just been there two days earlier and she was crying upset. And they, I think they just kind of made up their minds very early on that this is what happened. And I do think there is evidence, you know, to support that, but there's also evidence that absolutely flies in the face of suicide. So until they can get more answers or until somebody confesses, I'm not sure we're ever going to get a, a clear resolution to this case. And um, there was some strange stuff, some strange goings on behind the doors of that mansion, wasn't there? Strange goings on, what do you mean? Well, uh, for example, secrets or, or friction between the family, uh, uh, things like that. Well, yeah, there was a lot of friction. The teenage kids and Rebecca did not get along. Rebecca did did not have a good relationship with the two ex-wives either. So there was a lot of conflict in the house. And Dina, Max's mother, uh, blamed Rebecca for Max's death because he did eventually die. It, she, he died after Rebecca did, but his injuries under her watch were fatal. And so she... She was very much convinced that Rebecca, even though she didn't think Rebecca purposely tried to kill the little boy, but that she was responsible somehow, that she wasn't telling the whole truth, if that's what you mean. Right. That, I mean, that's an allegation, though. That's not been proven. 
But Rebecca, when they asked Rebecca what happened, she kept saying, I don't know. I didn't see it. I don't know. And, well, why did you say he fell from the upper balcony? Well, because that's what makes the most sense, honestly, because the, the chandelier was hanging from the, it's a big wide open area between the first floor and the second floor. And so the chandelier is hanging way above the, the second floor, right? And so he somehow, they did a reenactment somehow, the sheriff's department hired somebody to come up with this. And then so did Dina, who came up with the, the, the murder homicide um, scenario. But they think that somehow the scooter, he might've been on the scooter, got some momentum somehow, could have like grabbed a hold of the chandelier, was swinging on it, and it broke. He also had seen his older brother and sister, I think, probably sliding down the, the banister, going down the stairs, and had tried to reach for the chandelier or kicked at it, or I don't, I don't know. There's just, there was a lot of boisterous activity going on in the house. There was, you know, soccer downstairs, kicking soccer balls around, lots of stuff happening with Oh, kids, kids playing. So it's unclear. It's unclear whether, you know, was he trying to impress the 13-year-old sister who was staying? You know, who knows what happened? But the sheriff's department ruled it an accident. And I think most people think that it was an accident. But there are a lot of people who think that Rebecca was murdered. Now, uh, I, I saw an interview with you where you were talking about kind of your newspaper training kicking in. And that you always only state things that that have happened or other people have said. You don't embellish. You don't make stuff up. That's true. Yet you have a great reputation for taking something that, you know, could be summarized. You know, if you looked at just the facts very quickly, I guess almost anything can be really. But you're able to build out a powerful narrative and your books are so popular. You're New York Times bestseller, option for TV. So how do you make a story like this compelling yet make sure that you stick to that uh, that journalistic training, just the facts? Well, because there's a lot of unanswered questions here to explore and a lot of evidence that conflicts. And so I basically... You know, I got the whole investigative file. I have all the pictures from the autopsies. I have all the reports. I have the invest. I have the witness interviews. So I know what the sheriff's department did and what they didn't do. I sat through the whole trial where the, interestingly enough, the sheriff's department was actually testifying for the um, defense. In, which is so weird because normally when you go to a trial, <laughs> it's a prosecution. Yeah. It's for the prosecution, right? But they were basically testifying that it was a suicide and that they believed the totality of the evidence, you know, basically supported what Adam Schacht and I was saying. So the house came up with all these other things. Well, so I basically, and some things came out at the trial that I thought were fascinating that, but you only got a little tidbit. So one of them was that. Rebecca had basically um, said she was kidnapped when she was with a boyfriend while she was still married, told the boyfriend she was going through a divorce, which she wasn't, and basically disappeared. And he reported her missing to the Glendale Police Department. And um, she was with her husband. So, but she was calling him and saying, they've got me, they've got me tied up. I'm, you know, they're, driving me around in the back of a vehicle. I don't know where I am. And he's like, well, what, where are you right now? You know, he thought it was a bathroom. He, she says, yeah, they let me go to the bathroom. 
But she was crying. She says, I'd really want to be with you. Anyway, it turns out she was with her husband. And she ended up going back to him and never told the boyfriend. She just disappeared again and kept saying, oh, you know, I don't know. I just need some time. I need some time. No, she was back with her husband. So Rebecca, the more I got into this, the more Rebecca turned out to be many different, um, showed many different faces to different people, I guess, told different stories to different people. So she became this character that was very complex and not just what her family said she was, which is a very modest, religious, you know, happy person. Well, no, actually she wasn't. There's a lot more to her. And so I went into all of those backstories, which, you know, really fleshed her out as a person. So she's not just a one-dimensional victim. She's actually a person who showed different faces to different people and told many people stories that were not true. So she claimed her husband um, physically abused her. He said, no, 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 and emotionally abused her. And she did a lot of this to, to get sympathy. You know, we haven't talked about this, but part of the aspect of this book that, that got me to um, sell it to my publisher is that my late husband hung himself. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. So I brought a unique insight and perspective to this story and to analyzing and and showing who exactly Rebecca was. And the more I got into it, the more I saw parallels between my late husband and her. They were actually both, this is the weirdest coincidence, I don't even know if it's a coincidence, but um, they were both arrested for shoplifting in Phoenix and went through the same diversion program, huh. but did not not at the same time, and I'm sure they know each other. But I'm just saying, how weird is how weird a coincidence is that? And she told uh, Jonah a completely different story than what's in the police report. Just like she told her boyfriend a completely different story than she told the police, because he made her go to the police department when she came back for a couple of days. She said, I don't want to go to the police department. I don't want to go. He took her there. She basically went in and says, well, I'm breaking up with him. I haven't told him yet. And he, she never told him that. So, you know, that is how I flesh out these stories is because there's so much more going on behind the scenes. I also interviewed Jonah Shacknight eight times, two hours each time. Wow. And so I got all kinds of information about her, about their relationship, about, you know, him and his brother and, you know, the trial and all kinds of stuff that he hadn't told anyone else. Well, credit to him for making himself available. I think a lot of times people would hide from that. Well, I don't think he really, mm. I, I, it took him a long time to to come around, I think, but he did. And I'm so, so glad that he did because, you know, even though there's a house, he and there's a house uh, used to get along and they don't, I don't think they do now. I think they just don't see eye to eye, but there's, there may be some, you know, information there that we don't know still. I'll just put it that way because he was, he's very guarded and he has a reputation to protect and businesses and a new family and, Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so, One thing I want to mention, because we always do this when this topic comes up in the uh, shows, any of the shows we do, the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, if anybody's in crisis out there, 988 is the new number. I'm so glad that they started that. In the United States, the number is 988. So please. Is that right? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. So I certainly hope that uh, 
that folks take advantage of it if they uh, feel that they, they need help. 988 is the number. So, And the bottom line to this is that this is a tragedy no matter what. I mean, this is a tragedy all around. And Adam Shacknight denies that he did anything to her at all. Still, to this day, he's a very angry person. Thinks that his life's been, and his reputation has been sullied. And is, you know... S- said really pretty nasty things about the Zahav family and the Zahavs um, have done the same just to him. And, and it, to me, it's totally understandable on both sides. Let's say yeah. that he is perfectly innocent. How terrible would it be to walk around and have people looking at you and think you did right. something you didn't do? And conversely, this poor family lost their, their child. Uh, and you can understand how, regardless of the facts— one way or the other, they might want to blame somebody else, or maybe it was somebody else. Maybe it wasn't even the family. It could have been somebody walking off the street. I'm not saying there's any evidence towards that, but I'm just saying. Oh, there's all kinds of theories. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I mean, it reminds me a little bit of John Benet Ramsey, to be honest with you, when you're talking about this. But I guess the point is, is that you can see how this is just a horrible thing for everybody involved, and and money does not necessarily by happiness that is true that is true and so she she left behind some notes by the way um on her phone which said how unhappy she was and that yeah it didn't matter that she was with this super rich guy that he wasn't sticking up for her against the kids you know he was taking their side and you know she wanted kids he didn't so there was a lot of conflict in the relationship and it wasn't going very well. And according to Jonah, if it kept going that way, they would have broken up at the end of the summer anyway. So they were in the process of, you know, things were not good between them. So much to delve into. Death on Ocean Boulevard <laughs> inside the Coronado Mansion case. I have a feeling we have just scratched the surface. So certainly oh, yeah. get that book, whether it's audiobook, paperback, Hardback, Kindle, whatever it might be, be sure to get it. Caitlin, where can people find Death on Ocean Boulevard? And where can people plug into all your work? Because I know you're working on that other book. Plus, you have all your other books you've done and upcoming TV projects and all (laughs) kinds of exciting stuff. Yeah, I mean, you can get it any place books are sold. And if it's not in the store, you can order it. Get it on any independent bookstore or any, you know, Barnes and Noble. And if you want any signed copies of books that are out of print, I have a limited number of copies uh, here in my book closet. Very good. Very good. Our guest has been New York Times bestselling author, Caitlin Rother. The book is Death on Ocean Boulevard Inside the Coronado Mansion Case. Caitlin, Thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate it. And Sure, it was a pleasure. I hope we get to talk before another seven or eight years. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks so much. As always, Caitlin is an absolutely fascinating guest, and I hope you enjoyed our conversation as much as I did. And much more to come here on The Crime Scene. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. And as always, be careful out there. Bye-bye, everybody.